This episode is sponsored by Fracht. Fracht means freight in German. Founded in 1955 in Basel, Switzerland as a freight forwarder, the company has grown and evolved to become a global logistics provider for many industries. Specifically for oil and gas, the company manages the complex movement of large industrial equipment used in our offshore production platforms, all the way to MRO, rope soap and dope, and chemicals. For more information, find them at www.frochtgroup.com. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Fracht, a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG, and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. Today, we are talking to Adam Goff, Senior Vice President of Strategy for Eight Rivers. Welcome to ESG Energized, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here, Delfina. So what I'd like to do for my audience is give them a little context for why I wanted to talk to you and wanted to get you on the show. You and I met at CIRA Week, sponsored by S&P Global, and we had a wonderful conversation and at the reason why I was uh, excited to, to have the chat with you was because during CIRA week, there was a, a theme that kept running through almost all of the presentations, whether they're a major presentation or panel discussions. And that was around the need within the energy transition to develop a master plan and that we needed to have an, a transition that came about in an orderly fashion. And it appeared that everybody seemed to agree that there were two major components to this orderly transition and this master plan. The first one would be that our path forward as a global society managing our energy is going to be a combined use of fossil fuels and renewables. And the second was that we were also going to need technologies that reduced or captured emissions associated with those fossil fuels. Did you kind of get that same takeaway from, from Sierra Week, Adam? Yeah, I think when we think about the energy transition, the thing that I think was clear at Sierra Week is that we need more of everything. Right. When it comes to clean technology, we need more solar, we need more wind, we need more batteries, we need more geothermal and nuclear, and we need more ways that we can use natural gas, for example, and, and fossil fuels without any of the harmful emissions, both air pollution, right, NOx and SOx, which we often forget about, as well as, well as the CO2. So I think yep. when you look at the scale of the challenge to reach net zero, right, this is not only are we trying to reduce all global emissions to zero in 
30 years. Uh, we're also doing that while the economy and world is growing, right? This isn't like when yeah. we go to EVs, we're going to have this huge new demand for power. And so you kind of have that dual challenge of kind of increasing uh, global economic development while decreasing carbon emissions and kind of cutting the tie between GDP growth and carbon emissions. We started to see in a number of countries like the UK where you're seeing a decorrelation of GDP and CO2 emissions, which for the first 300 years of industrial uh, civilization were tied. Though The role we play in that as Eight Rivers is we do carbon capture. So if you have existing facilities or new facilities uh, that need to use, say, natural gas or, or biomass, we can capture that CO2 and store it. And so that allows us to use a lot of existing infrastructure uh, in places that might not have enough solar and wind um, to fully supply all their industrial transportation and power needs uh, from renewables. So that is actually, from what I understood with our, origi our original conversation, Adam, was that that's just one aspect of your of your business. And you present yourselves as a full-service net zero company. So you kind of play in, uh, in, in a broad way in this space. So that's let's right. jump into Eight Rivers, if you will, because that'll really get this this conversation to some really in additional interesting points what is first of all what is the mission of eight rivers what is your goal your objective and then tell us what are the different solution areas or offerings that you guys bring to the table so at eight rivers we're developing the sustainable infrastructure of tomorrow uh today so we are inventing and commercializing large-scale innovations in the race to net zero. So everything we do is headed towards net zero. We invent technologies, right? We then commercialize them. We develop projects using those technologies, and then we license them to third parties. So that's what I, we mean when we say we're a full-service net zero provider. You often have companies who do one of those things, who maybe develop projects using other people's technologies or invent technologies, but rely on other parties to demonstrate them or to develop the projects. Uh, we were founded 14 years ago now, uh, 14 or 15 years ago. And the first thing we did and what we're most well known for is we invented the alum FET cycle, which is a super critical CO2 fired power cycle that's now being commercialized by net power on natural gas. And we're working on solid fuels versions uh, fueled by things like biomass. So we invented that technology and helped take it all the way through commercialization, where now it's a standalone company. Uh, and we do that same thing across clean hydrogen and carbon removal. So we kind of think of ourselves as having three, three or four main verticals. We do clean power, uh, clean fuels, carbon removal, and clean industry. And on each of those, we do that full, full sector. So with some of the partners we work with, we might just be licensing technologies to a refinery who needs hydrogen. In another place, we might be developing and owning a direct air capture facility using our own technology that we develop and finance. So to you, it's second nature. But for my listeners, it would be helpful if you would repeat the alum fet vent cycle a little, a little more slowly <laughs> and then explain that because I read about it and I was fascinated. Yeah, unfortunately for Jeremy Fetfet, his last name is extremely unique and hard to, <laughs> to pronounce. Everybody always gets the alum. The alum is a little bit easier. Uh, so it's an it's a it's called the alum cycle for sort. Um, Net Power uh, now owns and is commercializing the natural gas version of the cycle. 
Um, so people are often know of this as net power because they, they fully do everything on natural gas at this point. But at its core, this is oxycombustion. So combusting of fuel not in the air, uh, but in pure oxygen. And when you do that, all you get is CO2. That CO2 can then drive your turbine. So one of the core insights, there's a lot of people who have actually looked at oxycombustion. One of the challenges was, what drives the turbine? Normally, it's the nitrogen in the air that's actually driving a gas turbine, just like a jet engine. Uh, okay. When you've taken that nitrogen out in oxycombustion, people have used steam to drive the turbine. Uh, Rodney, and with Jeremy's help, realized that you could use CO2 much more efficiently uh, to, to be that turbine prime mover. So the, the CO2 is driving the turbine. We've actually taken those same principles of oxygen combustion and using CO2 to transfer heat in our other technologies. So that was kind of the first thing we did. And then we took that and actually our clean hydrogen technology called 8 h 2 also uses CO2 to help transfer heat and also uses oxygen combustion. Our direct air capture technology also uses oxygen combustion. So we could take these same principles and use it to solve multiple problems on clean fuels, pulling CO2 from the air and making clean power. Okay, so it's always helpful and useful if, as you're talking about the innovations that you guys have brought to the table, your technology portfolio, if you will, to give us some specific examples that we might be able to read about or see somewhere, because that really crystallizes things in people's minds. So you can start anywhere with maybe the hydrogen or... Any, any other projects that you guys have? So on hydrogen, we have a unique approach to blue hydrogen. So that is natural gas, which is CH4, converting that into hydrogen. So pulling off the C, so all you're left with is the H2. Okay. Uh, in a high oxygen environment. So we're actually able to do a high oxygen kind of reforming, where we reform that uh, natural gas into hydrogen. Uh, and CO2, we not only capture all the CO2, but that CO2 helps us keep a lot of the heat in the system. CO2 is actually a very useful heat transfer mechanism. So we can take in natural gas, export hydrogen, and captured CO2. We sequester that CO2 underground. And now we can either sell that hydrogen for fuel production, typically, or we can convert it into ammonia. And ammonia is a transportable form of hydrogen. I think a lot of people talk about the hydrogen economy. We are bullish on certain segments of it. I think hydrogen is a little bit more of a, it doesn't solve everything, right? It's good mm -hmm. in particular sectors uh, because it's really hard to move. Uh, right. Natural gas, oil are very easy to move. Um, and by converting it into ammonia, that makes it something you can ship globally. Ammonia is already shipped around the, all around the world. That ammonia could then be used in existing uses, primarily fertilizers, or it could be used as a fuel. So ammonia is one of the big potential fuels for decarbonizing shipping. Uh, ammonia is a marine fuel. It's being looked at to co-fire with coal plants in countries that don't have renewables and don't have CO2 storage, countries like Japan. And it could also just be an energy carrier where you move your hydrogen as ammonia, you get it to say your destination is in Belgium, you just pull the hydrogen out of the ammonia, and now you can use it you know, as hydrogen. Uh, so that, that's how we see it as a, as a shipping mechanism that taps into existing markets and also allows for new uses uh, to grow as supply and demand kind of grow hand in hand. Okay, so two follow-up questions to that, since Please. once again you've, you've piqued my interest even further. 
on the ammonia for shipping, is there anybody that is actually using ammonia as a fuel in ships now? And if so, what size vessels are we talking about? So there are a number of companies who are building vessels. Um, okay. I do not believe that anyone is actually operating an ammonia-fired uh, vessel. There's Vessel um, yet. Okay. Uh, there's right. a couple so the- approaches. I think there's one fuel cell approach, one non-fuel cell approach. Uh, uh, but I don't think there's any currently any vessels uh, on the sea. Uh, methanol and LNG are the other alternative fuels for yeah. shipping. They're definitely farther ahead. right? If you look at the alternative fuels to, to reduce CO2 and some of the other air pollutants, uh, you're definitely seeing a lot more methanol LNG. We think that's going to happen faster. But longer term, it's pretty hard to decarbonize the methanol. Uh, and mm-hmm. the LNG emits CO2. So ammonia is that fuel where we can actually burn it on site and not have any CO2 emissions. And so it's a little bit more inherently decarbonized. So it's gonna, that's, a, that's a future uh, op- option for us in providing energy in that space that's going to continue to be developed. Okay, so that leads me to the next question, which then ties into a component of your business model which is the the project development component. Because I know that you guys uh, work with partners in developing and deploying projects. Again, if you want to stick with the, with the hydrogen example or use another example, are there existing projects that you could highlight for us that would really give my audience a quick education in what's possible so and what's I can happening? Say- we can give you a little bit of a sneak peek. We will be announcing a project in a couple months, so I can't okay. give exact locations, but we're working on ammonia export. So it would be um, a U.S.-based blue ammonia project where we're looking at natural gas in the U.S. is much lower cost than natural gas in Europe, Japan, or Korea, and the U.S. has better CO2 storage and CO2 incentives. So it's a really great place to make ammonia. And then you actually can send that ammonia to, say, Europe, who really needs additional ammonia supplies because of the Ukraine war, um, and to Japan and Korea, who are looking to use uh, ammonia to reduce their reliance on coal. Uh, And you're kind of doing two things there. You're both arbitraging uh, the U.S. low gas price, same thing LNG is doing, and you're utilizing the CO2 storage. Not only does the U.S. have affordable gas, we also have really low-cost and available CO2 storage, uh, the best in the world. And so you can actually use both of those things, storing the CO2 in the U.S., and then exporting a zero-carbon fuel uh, to the rest of the world. Aha. Uh-huh. So in this particular project that you're going to be announcing in a couple of months, not trying to get any any uh, inappropriate information out of you, Adam, just, just trying to, to understand the parameters. Mm-hmm. How many partners come to the table to bring this type of a project off the ground? And oh God, what dep- role specifically do you play? I mean, it depends how you count, right? With, with these mega scale projects that are billion dollar plus, I mean, you're going to have three or four main partners. But if you go okay. down the chain and start looking at contractors and OEMs and vendors, I mean, you've got dozens, right? And you've got thousands of people who come together on these mega projects. If we think about what our role is, right? So we we develop the projects. We locate, we locate the land. We get the initial term sheets and contracts in place for fuel supply, for selling the main product, for getting permits in place, making sure we get public support and build this in a place that, you know, wants uh, this facility in their community. 
um, and that the facility is actually good for the community and for the workers and the people who live around it. Um, key partners for us, you'll often have major OEM partners who maybe supply a key piece of equipment. An ammonia synthesis loop is a great example. You're going to have maybe one or two anchor off-takers who kind of early on commit to buy the product. Um, you may have a co-investor or two. Most of our projects, we typically bring in a partner who invests alongside us during development, maybe bringing some separate competencies that we don't have. And then you'll have an EPC, where you'll have a big engineering procurement and construction firm who does the feed study uh, and then goes and turns that into a financeable contract to procure and construct the equipment. Where do, what have you encountered in this space with the availability of knowledgeable partners and skilled workers that have the expertise to work on this? Or are, are we leveraging expertise that exists from existing industry, well-established traditional industries, where we can adapt the skill set? So one of the rules for innovation at Eight Rivers is you have to use existing uh, equipment and expertise, right? The, the timeline to build up whole new industries from scratch. Uh, it takes too long and costs too much money. So all of our, where we are always relying on existing expertise from refining, from you know, a thermal power generation, from you know, the gas processing industry. So there is a huge amounts of expertise and skilled workforce around the world. And there's always, you know, world-class experts in anything that we're looking at. The challenge I see, we see, really, is scaling. Is there are enough workers today? But if we need to have five times as many of these projects in in five years, uh, will there be enough workers then? Right. And so the, uh, we we do worry about kind of skilled labor constraints and construction labor constraints. If we're going to hit net zero. That means doing everything more, right? That means doubling and then doubling right. again and doubling again. There's a human component to that, right? That's more welders, right? That's more construction services. That's more skilled engineers drafting these documents. There's labor constraints inside of the permitting agencies, right? So one of the, the industry is very concerned about is, hey, we need the EPA to permit our classic storage wells. The EPA wants to permit those wells, but they go from one application a year to 20 to 100, Right. And can they scale up? So we there will be bottlenecks. And the question is where, right? Is the bottleneck yeah. going to be in the permitting? Is it going to be with welding? Is it going to be with engineering? Is it going to be with a subject matter expert? It probably depends and will shift over time. Uh, we think in areas where you have a mature market, places like solar, um, the solar supply chain is pretty mature or yeah, you know, thermal power plants. We think they'll be temporary, right? Like there will be growing pains. You will have long lead equipments get longer, but the market will be able to scale up to meet it. But this is going to be a question you're asking Delfina for the next 20 years because we're going to, the, the numbers only go up for clean energy deployments. And so this problem isn't going away. It's not going to be like two years from now we solve it. This is going to be something we manage throughout the energy transition. But I think that's a great problem to have, right? It's a great, it's a problem we want to solve. Creating too many jobs. That's, that's exactly, a good story. Exactly. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, Adam, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you to uh, share with my audience your, your words of wisdom, your, your words of, of advice for the future. What is, what are you most excited about for the future? And what are you most worried about? 
and you can tackle uh, the, either those in in any in either way. So you might want to end on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. So I think if I think about what I worry about, um, in order to build this massive scale infrastructure build out all around the world at exactly the same time, right? With new technologies, new partnerships, and new business models, uh, keeping everybody on board, right? So this is going to be a monumental task if everyone is rowing in the same direction, right? If we have, you know, opposition and squabbling on that boat, like we're not going to get close. And so I think that means a number of things. That means industry figuring out how we can all work together on this. The pie is growing. Right. There are more projects that we could all do and, you know, finding ways to partner. We very much believe in partnering. So I worry about that not happening and it'd be a little bit more of a scarcity, everybody kind of fighting over um, fighting over resources and projects rather than collaborating to just build a bigger industry and opportunity and really getting and keeping the public on board. I think over the last couple of years, we've seen a real sea change in the public being on board with energy projects that are net zero. But there's also a lot of warning signs about transmission projects in the Northeast or pipelines in the middle of the country that are having troubles. And we need to do this in a way where it's good for everybody. Like in order for everyone to be rowing in the same direction, it has to be good for all the stakeholders. The equipment suppliers have to be staying in business, right? The communities where these are near have to be having reducing environmental burdens, not increasing, right? The energy transition should be a story of the environment getting better, right? There should yeah. be cleaner water, less water use. There should be uh, lower air pollution. That's one of the things we really like about oxycombustion is that it, it's a kind of, you have a co-benefit. It's not just CO2, which is more of a global problem with a global solution. It also solves some, you know, local problems of, you know, NOx emissions or dust emissions or SOx emissions. Those are local burdens that have been, that are placed on nearby communities, which historically have been, uh, you know, unjustly uh, dealt with. And because there's plenty of energy communities who, who've gotten a raw deal over the last couple of years. So we have to, there's, we have to build this right in the next couple of years so that we can scale and accelerate, right? If we, if we botch the takeoff here, it's going to be a rough uh, 25 years here to try and reach net zero. So that's what I worry about. But you said I get to end on a positive note. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a technology optimist. And I, I just think if you asked me in 2015 if I thought we had any shot at net zero, I would have said absolutely not. Like 2015, in my mind, are dark days. Like we, yeah. we didn't have scaled up solar. Solar was too expensive. Wind was too expensive. Nobody was doing carbon capture. EVs didn't really exist at scale. Like it really looked like we not only didn't have the public will, but also that the technology solutions weren't there anyway, right? Yeah. That they weren't uh, mature enough. They weren't low cost enough. And the fact that we're only eight years from there, and now our problem is that we have too many good technologies and too many good projects and not enough workforce, it's an amazing problem to have. So I'm just really inspired by all the different companies and people we see kind of putting their shoulder to the wheel uh, for new technology and new business models and new policy to, to drive uh, clean technologies forward. I think I'm really op optimistic that technology keeps getting better. I know, you know, in Durham, North Carolina, that we have a team of really smart people who have really amazing inventions we haven't even told anybody about out yet. And I know that's true in other companies, right? That's not just us. Yeah. That there's, for everything you see out there for amazing heat pumps or, you know, direct air capture technologies, there are other technologies people are working on in the background. Some will fail, but some will succeed. So I'm definitely an optimist on the human effort that's going into this, the fact that the world is now pushing together towards net zero, and that's kind of a shared goal, which 
wasn't a foregone conclusion a couple of years ago. Net zero was not a shared goal, um, you know, even 10 years ago. And the technology improving to kind of give us the toolkit that we need to actually reach these ambitious goals we've set for ourselves. Well, you just you just nailed ending on a high note <laughs> and a positive note. <laughs> that was wonderful. So, Adam, if if we want to keep an eye on the innovations and new technologies coming out of Eight Rivers, can we put a link in the show notes to your website so that we can keep a watch? And and then can I can I get you to come back on the show when you've got some new technologies and new some, some new exciting things to to share? Absolutely, would love to come back, Delfina at. EightRivers.com is our website. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, on Twitter. We're constantly not only sharing some of our own kind of updates, but we're also highlighting um, other people's technologies, other updates in the field as we all kind of work together towards the shared net zero goal. Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. Adam Goff, pleasure to have you on the show. Delphina, pleasure is all mine. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.